appetite for distortion. And welcome to the podcast, Appetite for Distortion, episode 237. My name is Brando. Coming up shortly, we welcome back Brian Wheat to the program. We had the bassist of Tesla back on episode 112. Uh, Tesla was about to put out a new record. They were about to tour. And of course, the world uh, changed. But we also spoke about the early days of Tesla, specifically when they were label mates with with Guns N' Roses and his early friendship with with Axl Rose at the time. But now, Brian joins us for a different reason. He has a brand new book out, Son of a Milkman, My Crazy Life with Tesla. A lot to talk about, so let's not waste any more time. Brian, you there? Hi, it's Brian Wheat calling. Hey, Brian. This is um, Brandon. How are you doing today? Hi, Brandon. How are you? I'm doing all right. Um, I'm assuming I, I won't give your location away. I know it's a secret government location, but, uh, where are you calling from? Are you from Texas? I got a Texas. Uh, I'm not, a, it's not a secret. I'm in California. <laughs> oh, okay. Okay. I got a Texas number that yeah. came up. Okay. I gotcha. I'm working in my studio. Right on. Right on. Yeah. Um, probably my Texas phone number came up for you. I gotcha. Well, I'm, I'm yeah. happy to speak with you today. I mean, you do a million interviews. I'm sure you don't remember, but it might've been about this time last year. You were on uh, briefly uh, promoting the the new Tesla record, and that seems like a different world now. Uh, but I I had asked you, and I'm excited to talk about your your book, Son of a Milkman. So I'm curious your response to to this or where the book start. I asked you about uh, the if there ever will be a Tesla movie, and you kind of like eh, no no let Motley Crue do that, or you were talking about Bohemian Rhapsody, but now we have a book. So I guess now it's not a movie per se, but it, it reads like one. I'm I'm intrigued and enthralled with it like a movie. So where did right, I... but but it's my story. You know what I mean? It's, uh-huh. it's how I saw it. So you know, the Queen movie was about Queen. You know, not it didn't you know touch on you know, although it was based around Freddie, but you know it was basically basically Queen. You know, their 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 rise and they were in Freddie's death. Where if this is a movie, you gotta realize there's all this stuff about me in the beginning and it's centered around me. It's not centered around Tesla, it's centered around me and my involvement in Tesla. Sure, sure. So again, as far as the movie, no, I don't see a movie. No, no, no. And I was not even implicating that. I was implicating that this reads like a movie. It feels like a movie. And I, I'm excited to read about you because right off the bat, you start like how it's not going to be. Yeah, you've done the drug, sex, and rock and roll, but it's going to be different than the usual rock bio. And you went right into mental health, talking about Chris Cornell and Chester Bennington. And my listeners mm-hmm. know, and we can get into it too, but that affects me personally. And I've spoken about that on the podcast, dealing with mental health, addiction, suicide. So I guess what was the decision to go into – Talking about mental health right away with you in the book. Um, well, when I first started the book, because I've been working on it for about five years. Okay. Um, it was more of a chronological order of Tesla. as like a Tesla book. 
you know, the history of Tesla through my eyes. And it was actually my manager now, Mike Kobayashi, that said, why don't you talk about, you know, you and the things that you go through and the health issues you deal with and your, you know, your family and your wild childhood that you tell me about and all this stuff. And, uh, you know, don't make it a little bit different than your average rock and roll biographic, you know? And, uh, I went, Oh, that's a good idea. Let me write, write it down and see how it looks and reads when I see it. And when I did, I went, yeah, okay, here you go. Um, if you're going to do it, do it and be as honest as you can. So I did, I just laid it all out there. You really did. And I'm being completely honest with you, Brian. I had a kind of, Put it down for a second. Well, I was reading a PDF, but metaphorically put the book down for a second mm-hmm. because it it hit me. Because you're you're talking about again something I've I've had on the maybe you, you know who Alan Niven is. I know he was a yeah I know Alan Niven yeah I know Alan Niven. sure because uh, you were label mate to GNR when Alan was the manager right Al- Alan Niven actually wanted to manage us at one point in time. Oh okay, I think before Peter and Cliff, because he knew Tom Zutat and right. Alan Niven had seen us play. And, you know, I, I, I'm pretty sure Alan Niven gave uh, Tom Zutat a tape of us before we ever knew Tom Zutat. So, yeah, well, I know Alan. He's oh, that's guy. cool. Yeah, because uh, yeah. he's been on a few times, and we did a whole episode talking about mental health and depression, just talking about that and, you know, how mm-hmm. he, he dealt with, uh, you know, certain things in his life. And and just to get that from you right away, it's just it's a message that needs to be said more. So I'm wondering if you could, and I'm honest. So I know we don't know personally. You and I don't know each other too well. If you know you're honest, I want to be honest with you. I've talked to, mm-hmm. this this morning. It's it's fate. I had my therapy session this morning via Skype. Uh, Good for you, man. That it's been. I've been in therapy for like ten years. Uh, it's, yeah, I, I did. I did. I I. I I worked with this guy. I talked about him. I booked Dr. Hirschkopf for about 10 years. So I guess that's the best money I ever spent, actually. I agree with you. So that's where I'm kind of going with this. If you can kind of just talk about your history with mental health and just to, I'm just letting you know uh, about me, why I'm so interested in this part. Because, yeah, the rock, drug, sex, and rock and roll, you can read about that. It's anywhere, but just the. Yeah, my story, my story is no different or any more special than anyone else's who's done sex, drugs, and rock and roll. But so, the mental health aspect doesn't make the mental it aspect, You know, well... And you being know, honest about it. I, I, I first noticed something when I was about 13 years old. And I, it was one of the first times I smoked marijuana. And knowing what I know about marijuana and everything today and how it's all, you know, broken down into these categories and subcategories and stuff and the other, it must have been some really strong... Uh, sativa. Okay. You know, and it threw me into was an anxiety attack where I started to almost hallucinate and have, uh, didn't feel like I was connected to my body. And the actual term for it is derealization, depersonalization. And I, I didn't feel connected to my body. Mm. So at that point, I thought I had a reaction to the marijuana and I never smoked marijuana anymore you know, until many years later. And any time that I did, 
I had this same thing, which was this anxiety attack. And it would last, you know, it'd be severe and then it would be milder and then it would eventually go away. And, you know, that was when I was 14. Fast forward to we're doing Psychotic Supper, which is our third album. And by this time, now, you know, I've gone through everything I have gone through since I was 14. I'm 20 years old, 23, no, 25. Okay. You know, I had two platinum albums, been on tour, drank a lot, you know, alcohol obviously leads to depression and anxiety. It's not a, even though you feel like it numbs it, it actually fuels it, Mm -hmm. which you probably know. Uh, Um, Recently, five years without a drink for me. It was, it was, it was. So I started having really bad anxiety again, anxiety attacks. And we were in the middle of pre-production with uh, Tesla and Michael Barbiero and Steve Thompson doing Psychotic Supper. And I had this massive anxiety attack. And, you know, it was almost, I felt like I was up on the ceiling looking down at the bands. And, you know, I went outside and I threw up all over the place. And, and uh, I, you know, I was convinced that maybe I had some kind of brain tumor or something. You know, I was like, well, something's not right. This isn't, you know, something's wrong. And um, Steve Thompson, Tesla's producer's brother, was a doctor. And we, we went to start recording the album in New York. He said, why don't you go see my brother? He works at the hospital there, NYU or whatever. And, you know, he'll... You know, he'll get to the bottom. He's a good doctor. Get to the bottom. What's going on? So I went in there, and they did all these tests. Took me up to all these wires, and you know, this, that, and the other. And you know, finally, after like you know, eight hours, ten hours, or whatever, he comes in. And he goes, "Well, I know, I know what's wrong with you." And I'm thinking, "Okay, here it comes. He's gonna, you know, tell me I got some kind of brain tumor or something." He goes, "You're suffering from panic disorder, anxiety attack." And I went, what's that? And he went, well, your body just gets overwhelmed and you get into this, your mind, and it gets into this coping mechanism, and this is what it does. And I said, well, what do you do for it? And he said, well, I can put you on medication, or you can go see a psychiatrist. Well, at the time, I was, you know, drinking and taking, like, you know, downers. That was how I was. You know, right. And I'm like, well, I don't want to take pills. <laughs> <laughs> and someone said, isn't that kind of hypocritical? You were taking these other pills that you want to take pills. So I opted to try the psychiatrist thing. And I didn't believe in psychiatry. I thought it was bullshit. Okay. And I remember speaking with my manager, Peter Minch, about it. And he said, look, try it for a month. And if it don't work, then don't go. But give it a month and see if you're any better. So I met with this doctor in New York and, you know, he said, look, because you're in like acute, you know, thing and this is so strong, let's do two sessions, three sessions a week. I think it was three sessions a week, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. All right. For a month. And let's see if you're any better after a month. So sure enough, after... Four weeks, my symptoms have gone went down from like if you imagine ten being the highest, which was where I was when I got there, to like a five or four. So it started working, and then I continued 
you know, my therapy with Dr. Hirschkopf for another 10 years. And, you know, he taught me how to deal with it on, on, on my own. And I didn't take medication. I, I was fine from 91 to 2001, 2002. Okay. And then I went on medication because that's when Tesla got back together. And, and you know, levels were back again. And then at that point, I switched over to, to Paxil. Okay. Which is, I still take it to this day. I'm on Cymbalta, you know, I, I, I need it. <laughs> I, yeah. I've, yeah. And I tried getting off Paxil about last year and I, I got off it and it threw me in the worst depression and anxiety I ever had in my life. And I, I, I had to get back on it. So, you know, don't not take your drugs. If you need, <laughs> right. need them, take them. That's what they're there for. Say yes to drugs sometimes. <laughs> You know what's that? I, you know how the the old adage of say no to drugs. Well, say yes to drugs. Yeah, if, in if, mental if health, say, <laughs> if it's for mental health, just say yes. Right. Exactly. Exactly. You know, I have a brother that suffers from uh, mental health issues, and when he don't take his his drugs, he he winds up homeless and stuff. Uh, it's it's uh, really sad. I'm really sorry but to it, hear it, that. It hits me in a lot of different, you know, ways. And I think it, it's hereditary too. I think you know, doing the therapy and stuff. My mom had mental health issues. Mm-hmm. The family, you know, I think part of it is is in your in your genes. I would. So agree it's not with like that. there's something wrong with you or you're broken or anything. It's just part of it's in your genes, man. And you know, there's nothing you can do about that. What you can do is be responsible and get the help you need for it. The the combination, I think, sometimes the two of seeing a, a therapist or a psychiatrist who prescribes the medication uh, while taking the medication is the best course of action you know, to help you work through the issue. So you, you may not have always been at the same time, but the fact that you did both uh, helped you. And that's mm-hmm. what's been helping me, you know, just like mm-hmm. you. I just knew I had to go to therapy, but I didn't want to take medication. But my mm-hmm. therapist said after three months, she's like, I can't see you anymore unless you start taking medication because otherwise I cannot help you the way that you need to be helped. So right. what I want to ask. Yeah, for me, I, mm-hmm. I, I, I quit taking, I, I start taking medication when I quit the, the, the therapy. Okay. And because, you know, my therapist was in, in, in uh, New York and I was in California and it was, you know, on the telephone. You know, now I imagine it's probably much easier with Skype or right. FaceTime or all that. You know what I mean? So it's like you're in New York. So, you know, by the time, you know, at that point in time, what it was cost, because the insurance didn't pay for it, was cost me for the therapy sessions and the phone bill was just kicking my ass. Oh, yeah. And that's when I, that's when I switched to, uh, well, I switched to a different therapist, one in California, and then from there, he's like, you need to get on the pills. And then I got on the pills and I quit therapy. And, you know, but I think it's healthy. You know, I wouldn't mind going back and doing a tune-up, you know. Sure. It's different for everybody. The, the fact that yeah, you're yeah. – what, what's, what's great and, and what's a great read is how open and honest you are about recognizing that, that there's a problem and, do, and, and knowing how to seek help. And, you know, sometimes uh, med- medication doesn't work. Sometimes it, it's not the right doctor for you. But before I ask you, uh, I want to ask you a mental health uh, band-related question, but I don't want this to be lost. Uh, you mentioned mm-hmm. St- uh, Steve Thompson. 
it, it was mm-hmm. it was his like re- he rec- helped recommend the psychiatrist was that his the- no no he took me to his brother who was a medical and internal medicine doctor oh, okay because i just think that's and interesting. He, di- he diagnosed me okay with the anxiety disorder and my manager peter minch is the one that recommended dr hershkoff to me gotcha i just think it's interesting all the uh I don't know how, how funny life is sometimes, and you you're great at that connecting the dots about things that happened before in the past and in in, in the future. But because Steve uh, Steve Thompson was your producer, and I hope to get him mm-hmm. on this podcast at some point because he was also the engineer, right, for Appetite for Destruction, which came out shortly after. Um, yeah, he was the producer of the mix. Right, I just um, think it's just interesting how, in in a way, serendipitous that he kind of helped you uh, with your, not just musically, but Personally. Yeah, well, he was, you know, he was a friend. You know, he's still a friend. I still speak to Steve now and again. We've we've gone through a lot over the years, and and we're 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 still friends. So that's it's nice. With regards to the the mental health and the time that you are c- coming up, and it just seems to be which is a, it's a silver lining with all the losses that we've had in the in the past few years. You even write, you know, in addition to Chester. Uh, you know Anthony Bourdain. It's just it's just uh, overwhelming that in the last you know X amount of years, recently in the public eye, it seems to be happening. But there was a time where it was a stigma, and I'm curious: were there talks with you and your bandmates about mental health, or was there any sort of because um, especially back then, I'm just like you. Even though I'm a big mental health advocate at the time, I didn't understand therapy. I didn't understand medication. So was there any, no, it's, it's, it's kind of a stigma. So was there any you know? friction with the band or the label? With you well, what, I, I don't know if I talk about it in the book or not, but there was a point in time around into the now when we were making that album that, you know, we had been back together for three years or four years, three years, and we were still having a hard time communicating with each other, you know, because we had broken up in 95, and then we got back together in 2000 that we all collectively saw a psychiatrist together for, I don't know, six months. Mm-hmm. And to, to help us learn to how to communicate to each other and, and make into the now, which, you know, he, he helped us immensely. Was that, that must've been not, it had to have been before it became, again, I'm glad Metallica did this with the, some kind of monster and a band therapist. Not everything. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, maybe Metallica had gone to therapy before we did. Um, but I, I, there's a difference. But I, I don't know. Doing you it know, publicly I mean, and privately, you know. Maybe, maybe it's because I knew they were in therapy. I don't. Maybe it was because I saw Metallica do it. I know I'm the one that suggested it. Oh, okay, that's interesting. Yeah, I suggested in the band. Look, we're having a hard time here again, and I, you know, let's not break up again. Let's, let's try to get <laughs> someone objective in between us to help us learn how to communicate with each other. And that's well, it's, you obviously have done a, a great thing and, um, for yourself, the, for the people around you, because just at the beginning, it's just, um, it, it, well, I don't even have to say the beginning, just as the title, son of a milkman. It's just, it, it's, it could be brutal. You could have had a, a very different, uh, story. And the fact that where you are now and that you're able to, t- uh, to share others, this, this tales of, of triumph, things that, that happen with your family, you know, just being 
just being born. Uh, I, I can't imagine the stuff that you've had to deal with and that this book, you say it's been five years, but it must have been. You must have felt like all in you all this time. Was there always a book in you? Well, it was and, always in me. Right. And, and a part of writing the book was the way to release it and let go of it. Because, you know, when you internalize shit, this fuels anxiety, yep. which fuels depression. Mm-hmm. So letting it go and putting it out there and letting the world read your shit, your dirty laundry, or, you know, it, it's kind of liberating. It's like, cool, it's out. You know, I'm an illegitimate bastard child. It's out. Mm-hmm. You know, I used to be bulimic. It's out. I struggle with my weight. It's out. I don't like when people call me fat. It's out. You know what I mean? I just put it out there. So now it's it's out. Wow. So now I can just move on to something else and not keep all this stuff inside. That's so healthy. It really is. It's inspiring, to be honest with you. Because uh, just uh, just in little pieces, as an on-air personality, and everyone finds it uh, in their day-to-day lives to some degree. But you have to just let things out and move past it to truly heal. And it's just very – it's inspiring. So – uh, if I haven't said it yet, I don't think I have. Just thank you for writing this. Uh, oh, you're welcome, man. Thank you for interviewing me about it. Of course. I, I got to ask you a couple of, uh, I guess, geek questions, if you don't mind, before I let you go, because I know. Sure, I, sure, because we got about 10 minutes, right? Uh, you know, I wasn't even given a time. I was ready for wait, oh. waiting for you to be like, all right, we got to go. So, all right, if I got 10 more minutes. I'll... Yeah, no, I got it because I have <laughs> another one after you. So, All right, sounds good. Yeah, well, I mean, a lot of people want to talk to you, so. I'll pick your brain while uh, while I, I can. I appreciate it. So you had mentioned when you were signed to Geffen, when Tom Zutant signed you, that you were like the first uh-huh. big rock band to to make it because like Def Leppard, their, that album didn't really make it. But then all of a sudden, Guns N' Roses came in. Yeah. I, I want to talk about that because you also talked about the mix, how you if you had really like access, like you, you lost the the, the the master of the- well, a couple of things with the mix. Right? Okay, we weren't allowed to go to the mix. It was voted by Tom and Cliff and Peter that we weren't allowed to attend the mix. Why? So that if you, unless you, you know, know, for tell whatever me reason, we we weren't allowed to. You know, we were like the little kids, and they were the bosses. Okay. And, you know, didn't you hear Appetite? I remember going to the studio, hearing Appetite when they were in there recording it. And it made our record sound like a midget. Huh. And, you know, and, 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 you know, Guns was allowed to go to the mix. You know, I know for a fact that, that Axel and Flash and I think Duff were all there while they mixed that with Michael and Steve. So... I don't like the way the first record sounds. I, I think it's just really reverb everywhere. And, you know, the drums are loaded with reverb. And Jeff's voice is buried in it. You know, it's like pea soup. Um, so I, 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 you know, I, I, if that's what you're asking, that's, you know, yeah, I don't like the way that record sounded. I love the record. I think it's great songs, great performances. I just don't like the way it sounds. Yeah, you elaborate that on that, and that's really fascinating because you don't often hear that. You know, you could be a, yeah. you could be a perfectionist and like, oh, I wish I did this different or that. But to want to, yeah, re- I wouldn't do anything different. I just would would have mixed it 
you know, with a lot less reverb. But he was successful. And turned the guitars up a little bit more, you know. But he was successful despite that, which I find interesting. Yeah, of course it was. But then I wouldn't be talking on the phone with you. Right. (laughs) Of course. So, you know, I'm just saying hindsight being for me, you sit there and you go, well, is, you know, would you like to do anything different? Yeah, I would have liked to have been able to attend the mix. Well, you know, my question, I guess, also with that is that when you hear Guns N' Roses and how big they became, you know, uh, substating the obvious, obviously, you know, you had your success, but. I guess what were the feelings? It's like okay, you are helping them out because you had mentioned also. Well, we didn't help Guns N' Roses out. No, we no, no, no. The, the label and Tom Zutan helped them out, uh, and, and he was helping you out. Then, then you mentioned that he. Sorry if I misspoke. Uh, that Tom was working with you, and then he. When, right, and, I, I say he, that you know Tom was with us, and then once Guns N' Roses broke, he was with Guns N' Roses all the time. We never really saw him anymore. So mix that in with the sound, that they mix their sound better. I guess, how did you feel about the way they were treating Guns N' Roses versus the way they were treating you? Well, I, I, you know, I just think that Guns blew up and their priority went to, you know, it, 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 you know, imagine yourself in the, on a baseball team and one guy's Reggie Jackson, right? Mm-hmm. And one guy's Willie Randolph. Well, the attention's going to be on Reggie Jackson because he's hitting the run. And Willie Randolph's only playing second base, but they're both on the championship team of the New York Yankees at the time, if that makes sense, that analogy. It does. So I think, you know, we felt more like, um, you know, the second baseman than the home run hitter, or the home run hitter at, at, at Geffen. And roses, but the point I make is that our our record, McCown Resonance, was the first successful hard rock record they did because Done with Mirrors was the only hard rock record they did before us, and that didn't really do that well for Aerosmith, not like Permanent Vacation. And then you know our record came out and did very well from the gate, and then they put out Guns and Roses and it did well. Then they put out Permanent Vacation and. You know what I mean? And then at that point, you know, Geffen became like the premier hard rock label. And, you know, we were always in line in back of Guns and Aerosmith and Whitesnake. Now you got to remember, like, if you're a record company and you're going to get a radio station to play your, your song, right? And right. you go in there with songs, basically, at the same time. They're not they're going to play the bigger band. So that's what I kind of say is that Tesla, even though we were successful, we were the last in line when it came to the promotional, you know, attention that Geffen paid the Tesla in regards to everything else that was happening. I mean, you know, Love Song took like four or five months to get it to where it got to. It was a very slow, slow build. But I mean, you know, look, it, I, it's just—I guess it's like siblings talking for attention, isn't it? Yeah, and I identify with that. Uh, being the oldest of four, four boys. Yeah, but I mean, look, I love Guns N' Roses. I think Axel's great. I always liked Axel. He's always cool, and I love Guns N' Roses. I always have. Right always on. Will. 
Right on. And I appreciate uh, the the sports analogy, especially being a, a Yankee fan myself. Um, right. I, I think Willie Randolph. So then went, you know exactly what I'm talking I about. I do. I think Willie Randolph went to the same high school as my as my dad. Right. In, but in, in I mean, you know, Willie Randolph was on the same teams as as uh, Ridgie was, and he contributed. But Ridgie was the MVP. You know what though? This says about you, and um, I, I know you got to run to your next uh, next interview. It's because just like a sports team, you can have everyone playing their role, and those are the teams that win championships. But sometimes, yeah, to me, it's about the championship. It's not about right. who the home run hitter is. Right, because sometimes right. And, and, you'll have. And, and I feel that right. Tesla. You know, I guess the way to end this is, I feel that Tesla are champions. We, <laughs> you know, we right. We are the champions. I, I I love it. Oh God, I, I love it. That's the name of uh, your next book. We are the champions. But I I totally I I got you with the sports analogy. You 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 know who you are. You you show us in this book, uh, son of a milkman. It is a you know I'm not I'm halfway through, but I'm, I'm it's uh, it's awesome. It really is awesome. It's inspired me in so many different ways. I can't tell you. Uh, I can't tell you, Brian. Uh, thank you so much for your time. Oh, I, I plan to. I'm inspired by it. Cool, man. And, you know, it's, it's a funny read. Enjoy it, and hopefully it helps you. You know, I'm glad. That's why I did it. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time, and until next time. All right, buddy. Take care. Thank you, Brian. I know it can get pretty heavy talking about mental health, and you know what, though? It, I think we as Guns N' Roses fans, the, the core listeners of this podcast, we get it. There's a reason why we love this band, and and it's addition in addition to the music, you know how cool you know uh, Slash or Axel may may look, the band may look, the logos. I mean, there's so many different reasons why to love Guns N' Roses. But this brings me to a segment I've only done once before, but I'm going to do it again because I think it's appropriate given the conversation we just had. And uh, so let's kick off my monologue. <laughs> monologue <laughs> just, I don't know where these things come from but maybe that's the point the, the chemical imbalance that comes up with these stupid sound clips or the, the one that came up or help form and create what this podcast is uh, these, these years later it takes a certain special brain and it's the same kind of special brain that created Guns N' Roses as we know it today so I tweeted this out the other day and I I got some good responses, so I feel that it was important to, to mention on this podcast given the theme and uh, the topic we discussed. So I tweeted out, uh, part of why I became a fan, again, there's a variety of reasons, is Axel like me. Choosing a career that requires to be public, open to criticism. However, I am terribly shy, an introvert by nature. Anger issues plague me. Nothing is ever good enough. Being by myself is the most comfortable. Is Axel like me? So let me expand on that, the, the 140 characters that they allow you to. But, you know, I will um, actually let me read some comments uh, first of all before I, I kind of expand upon that because I know it hit home for some of you. Uh, this one is pretty cool. Uh, this is from Nadia. Um, she said, hey, I'm kind of a new fan and discovered your podcast with the Suspect 208 interview. This week I listened to AFD's first episode and my first impression of you was, wow, 
this guy's way of talking is very similar to Axel's. I know it's not enough to answer your question, LOL. Actually, it is because maybe that's that's something I also always gravitated toward, the way Axel spoke. He spoke differently than every other rock star with a certain intelligence and just a certain cadence that was just different than everybody. You know, it wasn't his stage persona. It was the off-air persona that I was also intrigued by. So I take that as an absolute comment. So thank you, Nadia, and welcome aboard. This one is funny and interesting. This is from Ginger. To be honest, I really didn't know who Axl Rose was. I know who GNR was, but I wasn't a big fan until somebody told me I was a bigger asshole than Axl Rose. And I had to go investigate what the fuck he meant. And it's true. I'm a bigger fucking asshole, but I'm a fan now because I can relate to him. <laughs> well, I mean, obviously, it's very interesting to find somebody who didn't know who Axl Rose was. But the fact that they found this podcast, they decided to do their, their research, and now relates to Axl because of <laughs> the, the assholeness, I guess, if you want to poorly phrase it. Uh, Deborah goes, and I love the fact that there's a a strong female listener presence of this podcast. Uh, I don't have anger issues, but the rest really applies to me. Okay. And Phil Ward, perhaps the, the comment of the day or whatever, you and Axel have both, both released the same amount of music since 2008. <laughs> well, I don't know if it's, it was technically a release, but Axel did rock the rock, right? I, I don't know for Looney Tunes. I don't know. But, but but point taken, and I think a lot of you are understanding where I was coming from, that there's a lot to relate to when it comes to, I mean, I'm sure other members of the band, but for me, it's Axl Rose. And what Brian said in the interview about putting something out, and it's just, it's out there. I I struggle with that. Brian listed, okay, you know, I, I, I have all these things. It's in a book. It's out there. Now I'm moving past it. That's something I've always struggled with. Does Axel Rose struggle with that? Does that tie into music, new music? Is he afraid to put stuff out? Does he not want to move on? I, I don't know. I'm not his therapist. But these are things I think about as the type of fan that I am. And I know many of you are as well. Just something to ponder. <laughs> Are you pondering what I'm pondering? Man, I'm catching up on uh, the the reboot of Animaniacs. See, that's what I, you have to do when there's no concerts or um, no new Guns N' Roses. You, you watch <laughs> the reboot of Animaniacs. They actually had what I would like to believe is a Guns N' Roses reference in the show. Now, I don't know how many of you are watching Animaniacs that might have recognized that as well, but pretty cool nonetheless. So that does it for this episode of Appetite for Distortion. Who is the next guest? How could you possibly participate? Submit questions. Well, the best way to communicate in between the podcasts is on a thing called social media. Facebook.com slash The AFD Show on Twitter at The AFD Show. Instagram, Appetite for Distortion. Don't forget, we have a brand new YouTube channel. Or I should say I'm actually updating it now. Uh, the subscribers are going up. It's pretty cool. Um, Suspect 208 is uh, thousands upon thousands of uh, of watches, uh, a Zoom interview on YouTube, which is just uh, awesome, awesome to see. And, of course, uh, T-shirts and all sorts of swag available uh, via Red Bubble. 
So until the next episode, when will you see it? Who will it be? When will you find out? All these questions. Well, in the words of Axel Rose, concerning Chinese democracy, well, we'll see it. I don't know if soon is the word. Security, I'm going home.